Welcome to the Making Good podcast, a platform for people, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name's Lee Evans. For the first episode of the pod, I spoke with John Lieber, a Canadian environmentalist, about his recent presentation to the United Nations Climate Action Summit, where he was invited to present on his proposals for a new way of thinking about nature-based climate solutions. We covered a lot of ground, looking at and celebrating some of the best practice in nature-based urban improvement from around the world, the importance of native over non-native biodiversity, and even the place of interior planting in good building design. But we also got stuck into trying to explain some of the blockages that we experience and how his UNCAS framework might help accelerate the pace of green building improvement through an alternative standard of certification. I began by asking John to introduce his extensive CV and tell me a bit about the environmental professionals group he's created online to help facilitate connections between those of us working in a somewhat isolated fashion in our various professional capacities. I hope you find John's work as interesting as I do. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and please also leave us a review. It helps other people to find out about the podcast and helps John's ideas reach a much bigger audience. Sure, so I am an ISA certified arborist and a LEED accredited professional. LEED is the green building uh, program that we use here in North America, so I'm an accredited professional um, for that program. I also work with the City of Toronto um, in the Urban Forestry Department but I also consult with my consulting firm, Jungle Capital, and I specialize in green infrastructure uh, projects. I'm very active in the environmental industry in general, so I run a environmental professionals Facebook group, and I believe that's where I met you and got interested in um, some of the work that you've been doing around green roofs. So yes, the um, the, FB, uh, uh, the Facebook group is where we met. Um, I was impressed by what you've done there, creating a space for meaningful interaction on important questions between people who seem broadly to be driving in the same direction. Can you tell us a little bit more about environmental professionals, why you set it up, and how you're finding the process of moderating it? I love it because I believe, well, I, it just is true that you can plant all the trees you want or do all the work that you want as an individual, but you can amplify your impact by investing in, in other people. So I, I created it um, kind of selfishly because I wanted to help inform my own view on environmental issues and um, have other environmental professionals to help inform my view and kind of form me uh, as I continue and build a community around it. But I also have been able to help younger professionals that are joining the group and kind of make uh, a culture that, that brings everyone together and set the tone. So I, I find a lot of value in, in it and I try to uh, posture it specifically to creating uh, value and investing for the, the younger people coming up because th- that's where um, our greatest impact can be. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about what you've um, what you've done there is that it's um, well, it's one of the things that we really uh, need right now. I think as as these ways of thinking and working are becoming mainstream, but but haven't quite yet made it mainstream. While we're struggling on the edges and um, and trying to trying to do the right thing, I mean, it's kind of the the spirit that animates this um, this podcast. I would say 
Um, one of the things that we need to do is to find ways of building in um, resilience into networks of people, you know, trying to do the right thing. And I really, really admire what you've done there for that. Um, can I ask you what kind of things are emerging as subjects of discussion? What themes um, uh, is the network converging around? What benefits are you seeing in the group as it grows? The nice part is that it's a really diverse topic range. I mean, it's really everything, but every now and then you get those really controversial um, topics that come up. And what I've found actually myself is when I feel really passionate about a subject and really offended about something or something, um, a lot of times I like to just put out my bold opinion on on what it is that I believe and where I, where I stand on it. And what I find is that the more informed you become in actually listening to the other side and, and getting more reasonable information is that you become less extreme. So I think that extremism is moderated by information. And that's just what I've found as I grow in my own professional capacity. So it's been an excellent uh, way of informing yourself um, because it's easy to get caught up in the one uh, kind of silo yourself in the one metric of your nature studies. So there's people like me who are in urban forestry or green infrastructure. But then when you have a geologist in the group or someone who's uh, studying microbiology, they can bring a completely different uh, perspective to the conversation. So there's, you know, the topics range by the day, but by having these experts from a variety of different backgrounds, experiences, and also at different levels in their career. It uh, is an excellent way to inform yourself if you are genuinely looking to to learn, uh, rather than just make a make an argument on behalf of anything. There's something really um, really great about approaching things humbly in the way that the way that you describe. Malcolm Gladwell's got a podcast that I listen to, Originalist History, and uh, he's been um, trailing this um, audio book that he's um, he's been he's been making called um, How to Listen to Strangers. And I think that the what you described there really captures the uh, the sense of openness and humility that um, that I believe the um, that his um, his work's um, driving at, and and really timely, really important for the um, for you know for the times that we're um, we're living in. It's um, it's um, it's great. Can you um, can you tell me whether or not it's impacted on your own professional development? Have you you know uncovered new ways of thinking about jungle capital? About has it fed into um, to Uncas at all? Yes, definitely. Because at the end of the day, my work in green infrastructures, it, I I try to focus on the technical aspects and being very technically oriented, and being well informed is uh, translates into confidence and and higher quality of work so it's just a way of kind of sharpening your skills and also having a a network of people that that um that support you and that we support so there there's been times where i've been caught up in a tricky situation i didn't know something i could ask the group or even uh directly message people people directly message me all the time and we have off conversations, so it's really just an extra uh, layer of support and an and an extra um, avenue of gaining confidence in the industry. So it's just a tool, and uh, it's a valuable tool. So, so yeah, I, you know, I think that we need to recognize, or anyone, sh- I think 
that uh, that has gone very far in their career recognizes that it's all about people, no matter what career path you have. And if you recognize that, then you start taking networking and and just uh, in, also I'm just naturally someone that enjoys talking and connecting with people. So if you recognize that, then uh, then you see the value in having this this uh, wide network. Yes, one of the um, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out um, is because I really value what you've been doing in in this sense. Um, not everyone is you know outward looking or um, um, in you know has to be focused on their work and, uh, and 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 creating resources like this. I think it's um it's a, it's, it's really important it's really important to help kind of knit the community together. So um so you've just attended Uncast and presented a big idea there. Before we get into the specifics, can you give us a little background on Uncast? What it is, who was there, what it was seeking to achieve? Sure. So there was the United Nations General General Assembly which happened in September and it brought and that was in New York City. It brought together a lot of uh, world leaders and also local leaders like mayors, uh, states of uh, heads of state. And then also environmental advocates like uh, Greta Thunberg was there and uh, a, a lot of non-profit organizations. Um, so there was different tracks of the General Assembly. There's kind of the high profile meetings where, you know, you see the, uh, the president of the United States and president of France, everyone, they were all there doing their thing, making announcements and commitments and discussing their posture on climate change. So climate action was the theme of the, the General Assembly this year. Uh, one of the tracks that they had, which is kind of a, a, set, a series of meetings, was around natural-based solutions. Leading up to the, uh, the General Assembly, they put out a call for contributions around natural-based solutions. So they were basically asking, uh, like, hey, what ideas do you... Uh, in the private and public uh, realm have for taking action on natural-based solutions. And that's when I, I had been really exploring the last couple of years, you know, with my green infrastructure work, but also with my government work, just seeing um, different green building programs, seeing what's involved and also what's missing. And largely what's missing is the green in the green building movement. So that's when I put forward my my contribution, uh, which I call the Ecology Positive Cities Framework, and they accepted that. They seemed to like it. They they published it on their website, and then they invited me to the assembly. So I didn't actually present at the the assembly, but I was able to have kind of side fires fireside chats with uh, with a lot of people and do a lot of networking. And it sounds like there's going to be some follow-up because it's just given a lot of exposure to my idea. And um, hopefully there'll be some more momentum on it. But it's it's been the first step in, in getting it kind of out into the, the public's, uh, either public realm. That's great. So, um, so let's dig into the idea you presented um, at Uncast a little bit more. So it's about eco-archaeology? So let's... <clears throat> I'll just kind of like lay out the puzzle pieces and then before I bring them together to, to kind of articulate the idea. So the first thing is that plants are the solution to our most colossal urban challenges and research 
consistently creates a clear narrative around that. Whether it's clean air, managing stormwater, health and well-being, it seems that wherever you approach urbanism from, whether that's uh, you're in water resources, you're in forestry, you're in transportation, you're in uh, buildings, that it, you lead back to seeing that we need more trees, we need more plants in order to create healthy um, living environments. So that's kind of the first thing that's happening is that we know plants are essential solutions for some of our most challenge, our greatest challenges, and we need more of them. The second thing that's happening is that there's places like Singapore and then certain architects like uh, Stefano Bori, who's uh, done the Bosco Vertical, and they've demonstrated, and then also people like yourself who are doing the green roof uh, work, and they've demonstrated what's possible around architectural creativity and engineering. They've demonstrated that we can incorporate plants into buildings. So what we have is a huge demand, and also we've proven that we have the technology to do it. And then you look at kind of the lay of the land on 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 the rate of urbanization, the wild rate of urbanization. So by 2050, there'll be something like uh, 70% of, of all people will live in urban areas. So that's an additional 2.5 billion people from what live in urban areas today. So the emergence of mega cities is only going to amplify the, the demand for, for healthy living environments as, as density occurs. And then um, also what we're doing when we build density and these create these high rises is we're actually increasing the surface area of the earth. So there, there's an opportunity there. And, um, and then, as I said earlier, um, the green building programs that exist, there's many of them. So there's lead in North America. Toronto actually has its own built green building program, the Toronto green standard, uh, UK has bream, uh, Australia has green star. So there's, all these different uh, green building programs, which there should be because uh, green buildings need to be tailored to the environment and to their local context. But all of them are very heavily focused on, on climate change impacts, which, which is excellent. And they're going for net zero, but also things like recycled building material. And they do try to be sensitive on where the site is, build density, but there's a severe lack on uh, incorporating plants into, into the urban environment. And S Singapore has done a good job in creating an incentive framework around it. But I kind of wanted to expand on that in order to scale that impact around the world. So what I came up with is kind of a framework that would allow developers to achieve green building certification as, through an alternative path. So maybe they wouldn't hit all the recycled material or wouldn't quite hit um, the energy efficiency standards, um, but maybe they would achieve this standard, which I'm proposing. So right now it's a very conceptual plan, but as it goes forward, I'll get more in and consult more professionals. I'll get more granular into the details of how it would exactly work. But as far as the conceptual framework, um, I developed this uh, through my own expertise, but also in partnership with um, 
Dr. Cecil K from, and I, he has a really long last name, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but he's from the University of British Columbia. And um, the process around this framework, the way that it would work um, in order to gain the certification is that the first step is identifying the ecosystem that existed pre-urbanization. So in most cases, we have the ability to either look at the surrounding environment and either estimate or by looking at historical maps um, determine which type of ecosystem was in the urban site before urbanization so in in canada we had a lot of sugar maple beech forest that that could have been it and using that ecosystem to estimate leaf surface area of depending on the size of the site and that leaf surface area of the ecosystem pre-urbanization would be the baseline for leaf surface area. The, the really novel aspect of this, I think, the one that I've, um, that's just new to me that I've not come across before, um, is increasing leaf area specifically. Why is that such an important metric? Why is it the center point of your, um, of your big idea? So in almost all of the services that are provided by plants, Quantity is a big part of it. We need a higher volume, a higher quantity of plants. So in order to achieve um, the metrics that, that are pr provided to us, the services, so cleaner air, um, transpiration, more habitat, whatever the metric is, we need more, especially as we densify and you know even uh, sequestering carbon the, the point is we need more we need a lot more so surface area by looking to increase it is um that the objective is to um to amplify those services that we get from leaf surface area the one metric that we need to be very careful about and that that's why i want to be the one to lead this is we need to also be careful about native biodiversity. So the first step would be identify the ecosystem that existed pre-urbanization. The second step is to quantify the leaf surface area of that ecosystem as a baseline. The third is to create a positive leaf surface area gain in the proposed design while prom promoting native plant biodiversity. And you can do that by putting plants on top of, on the side of, and within buildings. And so this incorporates rates including house plants as green infrastructure because I think they are greatly lost in the green infrastructure conversation right now and then the fourth uh, step would to be to recognize that achievement um, in the green building program and if you think of what's really happening here if we achieve that by creating a greater leaf surface area gain than ever existed on that site I mean, it's a, it, it would be significant, especially if we got like a whole downtown core or a series of buildings that achieve that. It's, it has the possibility for us to change the narrative of the human species to not be so guilty for living in the places that we, we dwell in, but to be proud and know that we're creating, we're creators of life, not destroyers of it. So I think it's a fun idea and it's it's very practical and I have the technical um, expertise to see how it would work. But on a more conceptual level, I think it's it's significant what it's implying. 
there are a few things that I'd like to um, to dive into. Um, but as an aside, I've been listening to the um, to the Richard Maybe collected works recently on audiobook, and one of the things that I was listening to today was him talking about the. Um, the kinds of trees which will be climate resilient in years to come you know what trees do we select for planting in cities as the climate's changing but he was talking not only in terms of like what will survive but also in terms of the quality of shade their canopy through you know to get species which really enrich the human experience of nature in the in the city and that kind of speaks in some ways to you know how we can stack the benefits of bringing nature into the built environment um like i was thinking of um the, the use made in um in japan of um of climbing plants you know rather than modular living walls of um, ground planted um climbers which you know like, which reach great height and are suspended off the off the building you know um half a meter off the building on um on trellising what they they, there's a lot of science to show how they um, they promote the um, um, they promote cooling internally, reduction in um, in, in energy costs associated with um, with HVAC. But but I love that he was talking about the human experience of being um, being in and around these plants. Something that really stuck with me, Lee, after we met last time, that you said that I think is so true is that um, I'm not sure who you're quoting, or maybe it's just I think maybe you're just your own idea was that we have this idea of forest bathing where people are kind of taking advantage of the concept saying like, okay, this is something we should do once a week. And you were saying how it should be something that we're doing all the time. It shouldn't be a, an isolated event, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so not uh, fetishize nature to, to put it on a, on a pedestal. There's, um, there's a lot of buzz around at the moment um, in terms of, uh, you know the concept of um, biophilia, and that's um, that one level. That's that's really to be to be welcomed. But I think we need to be um, really careful that 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 we don't um, over instrumentalise this. That it doesn't just become about like how many percentages of um, of, um, of of, of um, efficiency can we um, can we extract from uh, from staff. That we that we remember that there's um, that there's something deeper, um, a real a real connection here. We've got an opportunity to like to really to really work in such a way where we can meaning fully um help to restore um restore nature and therefore like kind of um bring out um enable the um that, that that connection that we all feel to um to be fully realized and that's where a lot of the opportunity lies because although the ch a big challenge is that house plants or you know indoor plants aren't providing the biodiversity metric which is a very important metric but when you get a 17 to 40 story tower and you're cramping uh, each floor full of plants in every space possible it's about using face space efficiently that is where the opportunity lies when you quantify how much those plants uh, are contributing but also how much leaf surface area they're creating that's when you actually have the opportunity to create more uh plants uh that have existed than than potentially ever on the site before you raised the case of singapore earlier i'd like to raise a flag for around um, for ho chi minh city that i visited earlier this year it's so rambunctious you know the fact that there's so much nature tumbling out of every 
every corner, every balcony, there's you know there's um, relatively rudimentary buildings that you know cast concrete buildings where there's been um, spaces deliberately created specifically for people to grow to grow plants, and it really makes the city livable. I recorded footage on a number of street corners, just showing how much um, traffic is passing by, and it's really only the the, um, the the you know the plants tumbling out of these buildings um, off the balconies and so forth that um, that make the city so livable. It's um, it's inconceivable, I thought. Um, without without all of that nature, that the city would be as um, as, as like, pleasant a place to be as it is. That goes to the heart of of our of of the challenge for the environmental industry. The barrier to environmental solutions are not economic ones; they're cultural. So, once we 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 need to get to a place where plants are recognized as infrastructure and utility but also celebrated and not uh, not left to uh, not not you leaving empty space so I think being able to change the culture is uh, is the route to uh, achieving sustainability and like so- like so many of these things we need to start with the kids right if we could break down the barriers between people and nature at school age we'd probably see within a generation you know an expectation of and you know also young entrepreneurs policy people coming through young leaders saying hang on a second and i think that there's already uh an inevitable momentum happening that it's great that people like you and me and greta thunberg and david attenborough and david suzuki are all pushing sustainability but what I'm observing, and it could just be because I'm uh, very optimistic in general, um, but it seems like regulations are continuously continuously strickening, and that's raising the floor. Incentives are always becoming, uh, and innovations are always becoming uh, more technical and more able around sustainability, so that's raising the ceiling. And then on the other side, there's a private market um, emerging where people expect biophilic spaces. They pay more for the view of trees rather than a parking lot. So it just, although sustainability is not linear, nothing is. There's gonna, there's always setbacks. Like we've had some, um, th- uh, some government change in leaderships here in Canada. That's not always a direct line, but the overall trends seem to be. Uh, Bringing in, there has been a lot of work around education and that over the last how many years, but I think that we are inevitably inevitably leading to a positive and sustainable direction. I agree. I'm a big believer in an emerging zeitgeist, the kind of late modern yearning for something higher, a connection. I really, I just kind of see it everywhere. I see it in the queues for yoga studios on people's lunch breaks that, you know, the BRE is running workshops on biophilia that are really getting traction now. The presence of living walls on pretty much all of the shopping centres and um, and public buildings around um, increasing numbers of public buildings anyway around um, around London and even further afield it's not fully formed but it's definitely gathering pace can I just jump back into the specifics of your big idea and explore a little bit why it's so important to get natives into our green building envelope yeah so uh, our landscape has evolved over thousands of years to the plants that existed there previously to us bringing over um, plants from other places in the world. So the insects, the birds, the bats, uh, all fauna that rely uh, rely on the foundational flora that that they're used to. 
and even changing the colors of flowers through cultivars or the leaf color can severely impact uh, either the nutrients or the what the what the fauna are used to. So it severely interrupts their natural processes. And considering we're in the middle of an extinction crisis and an environmental, a global environmental degradation, um, it doesn't matter who you ask, whether it's the the fraud, and that's this is part of the some of the value of the environmental professionals Facebook group. No matter who you ask, the frog person, the the lichen scientist, the whoever, the bat scientist, they all indicate a decline or concern of their species. And it generally boils down to loss of habitat, loss of access to native plants. So it's incredibly important that we get start getting real serious about uh, moving away from decorations and um, start gardening for biodiversity. Is this something that individuals can make a meaningful difference to, would you say? Does the accumulation of, you know, <clears throat> investing in uh, smallish scale, green roofs, living walls, seed bombing, um, is this making a difference, would you say? Yeah, 100%, because the more deeper you go into biology or ecology, and, you know, not everyone is, is going to do that deep dive, but the more you start to recognize that how important each leaf is, how important every plant is, and what they contribute. So, you know, it's all about creating abundance on our landscape. And every leaf creates a little bit fresher air, takes a little bit more carbon out of the, the atmosphere. And as I said before, it's all about culture. So the butterfly effect is real. And, um, you know, you put that one uh, perennial native plant on the ground and think of how many... Uh, butterflies are going to land on it over the course of the summertime it makes a big difference and it's really important and it, it does change the world it's an interesting question one that i pose to myself in my work you know my conversations with architects with clients what's the narrative i find talking about individual species can really engage people in a way that stats and general course to action can't you know whether it's plant communities invertebrates one of the issues, especially where green building envelopes are overlooked by occupants at home or at work, some of the plants that provide these benefits, the food sources, they're not ornamental or at least not all year round. And balancing form and function in terms of customer ex- expectations can be can be tough. Do you have any insights in terms of how to think about how to leverage this narrative, ways of approaching this question? I guess storytelling, you know, to help leverage the benefits in actual projects. Uh, yeah, like I, um, you maybe will have to help me like, uh, better, uh, like with your, what exactly you're looking for. But, uh, what I've noticed is that there's consistently emerging research in our field. And I mean, uh, people in urban forestry or ecology, even just 10 years ago, were telling people that like, oh, non-native plants are completely fine. And we were planting everything, whatever works better, no tree than, or better non-native invasive tree than no tree kind of thing. And with the emergence of research, we are changing our perspectives exponentially. And it takes all industries to be able to adapt and not become uh, set in, you know, uh, one perspective and be able to adapt to change. So I understand their hesitation because I think that, they get they, once they finally learn something, uh, things can change quite quickly. So the onus is on us in a, in many ways to help them understand because it's easy 
for people in one industry to expect others to just understand and and to to get the nuances but we have to constantly be communicating uh the new the the message and 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 framing the narrative ourselves and um as we gain a more important foothold in society as as sustainability is greater has a greater recognition and becomes more profitable it's going to be easier easier to make that case on and in setting the narrative ourselves it's an interesting question here about the structural constraint constructual constraints excuse me inhibiting progress brass tacks we're dealing with habitat loss species extinction huge it, you know huge huge areas it can feel almost too much to reconcile yourself to but one of the things that strikes me we're trying to deliver is public goods through the nudging of private actions do you feel like a framework in which development is for private profit can be the engine for delivering achieving the changes we need at the scale we need 100% because the green building programs have demonstrated that they work so you look at lead and how many buildings have have achieved that certification through because the right now a lot of the governments are you know municipal governments local governments are offering either regulation to require green building standard lead or or bream or incentives to do so so by you know at this early stage of of the process right now we're slowly raising the floor as i said earlier and by giving that incentive it makes it profitable so it's it's economic but you're just tweaking it a little bit and by ensuring that there's things like making sure that the green the green building certification needs to be uh, recertified every so often. That ensures the maintenance of the features that they were required to to incorporate. So, governments need to be strategic by manipulating the market. I think gently, but also boldly. Like so, I think it's I think it's a balance. It's it's pushing as much as possible, but also realizing and uh, nurturing the the private market as well. So I think uh, as of right now, it's all about uh, identifying best practices around how to ensure developers um, kind of understanding the threshold, which makes them pursue the, the certifications and then implementing them. So there's a lot of different experiments happening around the globe, and uh, it's, it's a good time to identify best practices. Are metrics accumulating for demonstrating the ROI for developers alongside complementary to or in lieu of raising the regulatory floor? Is it increasingly clear to you what the benefits are for profit-driven actors? I think so. There, there's definitely more research coming out to support it. But then, uh, just like any industry that newly emerges, like whether uh, you see this big time in the renewable energy sector, is that it becomes cheaper to do it too. So architects and engineers are incredible people. Whenever I work with them, they're coming up with all types of innovations to make the, to achieve the, the certification cheaper and more efficiently. So that's kind of the um, benefit of setting the bar high and then letting them kind of find the easiest way to get there. So you're constantly seeing them figure out new schemes of how to create uh, whatever metrics that they'll land on. And that's kind of how I see my framework is setting the bar really high, 
um, and then allowing them to uh, have space to to be creative and to get there in a, a myriad of different ways. You're almost uniquely positioned in my circle to talk about appropriate sites of influence, if I can put it that way. There are national planning frameworks. Cities have a great degree of discretion to be pioneers or, or indeed to drag their feet. Where do you see the exciting areas? Is it the supranational level that we started off talking about? The city, perhaps, maybe regions? What's your take on where the real meat is at the moment? It's scattered, but it's at all levels. It's it's very. I, I couldn't say at at which scale it's at. It's more at, at in different pockets of the world. So when I was at the United Nations General Assembly, I was actually shocked because I was kind of going just to be there and do my thing. And I've been participated at other United Nations events, and out there was a kind of a lot of fluffy "let's save the world" kind of talk, but it was. A line of mayors and heads of states. I didn't see the, well, I didn't see the um, the top heads of states like the the president, the president of France, and that. But uh, I saw a lot of mayors, and there was consistently they would go up and they would just make a commitment on various goals, and then they would make a commitment on on budget um, ask for for climate action solutions. So it was shockingly inspiring and i think that we're going to start feeling that money coming down to us in the in the industry and then uh, at the and then you see at the provincial or state um for some places and local and then municipal local level just different um programs a lot of innovation happening a lot of exciting things so it it really depends where you're looking but there's also huge setbacks um in ontario I've, as i mentioned at our, at our provincial level we've been stripped of of almost all of, a lot of environmental progress that we've made over the last 30 years with one government and then also in the states you see with their president as well so it's not all sunshines and rainbows but when you 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 find what you're looking for and like I said before, the overall trend is incredibly exciting. The innovations that are happening and the best practices and blueprints that are being created, it's out there. So we just need to uh, find a way to get everyone on board. Yeah. yeah, there's a real network effect. I was in Mexico City a couple of years ago um, with one of the pioneers of Green Roof, Stefan Brenison from... Um, from the uh, from Zurich and Basel, when we were consulting on a green roof with a with a university that, um, that his university is twinned with, and the group there was really wired in um, with the mayor's office, who was part of I think it was the C forty group, and you could really see there the interplay of best practice between these major conurbations, feeding off each other, inspiration, applying principles here, being experimental, and it's clearly one of the key transmission mechanisms for for best practice at, at that level network effects it's a really live issue obviously at the moment with some of the grassroots climate action movements um sunrise uh, fridays for future and of course there's extinction rebellion um what's your take on the state of grassroots climate work at the moment that's pretty exciting like i'm not as involved with it as i as I kind of want to be, it's, it seems to be happening, happening pretty naturally, but it's exciting and I support it. That's, uh, that's about it. But I, I feel 
more on the technical side rather than the advocacy side. They're very important in, in what they do. But the way I saw it when I was sitting in the seats of the United Nations General Assembly and the, uh, I forget who, I saw the, um, someone, one of the heads of the UN was up there speaking about how important urban trees are and saying, you know, that they, they're nice to look at and all that stuff and they were going to commit millions of dollars to it. And I just thought their job in many cases the advocates get the rally for the money, the United Nations collects the money, and then they kind of throw it at us on the ground. So I see our role as being the ones on, okay, how do we do it in real life? Let's, let's, I like, we're the ones that are making it happen. So, so John, thanks. This has been really informative and, and inspiring as I knew it would. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens with, um, with your big idea with Jungle Capital. Um, and with um, and indeed with environmental professionals as well I, I think it really adds an incisiveness to the conversation around urban green infrastructure your big idea which I'm going to be tracking closely um, we're nearly um, at the end of the um, at the end of our time but I wonder if I could run a few quick fire questions past you um, first of all um, if you were king for a day what one thing would you do I would go all in on propaganda so I would I would go all in on on messaging and doing a complete and heavy communication strategy around why nature is important, what we want to put, like why to support native biodiversity. And just I think that would be using reaching out to celebrities. And I think that's the way to reach culture. And like I said, that's where the solutions lie is in culture. So I would go absolutely all in on that that's interesting it's just it's just changing the culture it's making it's giving permission for what's acceptable and not acceptable in society and that's moldable um especially in a democracy where we elect the government and they represent us and them kind of uh leading messages i mean it works very well here uh in the city when we it's it's more education but it is propaganda too in a good way but it's uh it's just creating the it's creating the atmosphere of the culture in the country and we see that in a in a, an amazing way in canada um around diversity the government sets the tone on okay here in canada we celebrate diversity and that has fused so well soaked our society so well uh so that's just one example of of how well it works so it's just setting the tone setting the culture and uh that it's it's um it's a mightily effective tool okay so to uh, to start to finish up um one podcast or or book and um and a person or social media channel that you think people would gain a lot of value from from following if they if they don't know already um, so my favorite book is, uh, well, actually, I won't say it's my favorite, but one I'm reading right now that I want to bring up is called Jungle Nomics, and it's written by a UK fellow. It was just recent. His name's Simon Lamb, and I hope that you'll have him on your podcast, actually. Reach out. And it's talking about, he's an economist, and it's talking about how to uh, tweak economics in order to achieve ecological goals, and he talks about how economies reflect 
uh, ecology. So you can think of like, think of like a moose running through a forest. It's destroying a lot of stuff, but there's also a whole lot of niches that live off that moose, like ticks and, you know, things that even when it clears a bunch of trees, new trees will will grow in that spot. And he compares that to like a billionaire in the economy hmm. kind of thing. Hmm. So it's very interesting. And I know with your economic background, you guys would have a very uh, spirited conversation. So I'll leave that. But um, And then uh, for Twitter, I would definitely recommend following my uh, my favorite professor is, uh, and, and I, I didn't learn from him directly, but uh, he's really the grandfather or one of the grandfathers of urban forestry and just such a great and kind and insightful person. And uh, that's Dr. Cecil K. And again, I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce his whole long last name, but his Twitter is, is at Cecil, uh, C-E-C-I-L-U-F-O-R-I-A. So that's at Cecil Euphoria. He's a great follow and just consistent um, emergence of new research around urban forestry and green infrastructure. Okay, awesome. And last up, where's your uh, where's your favorite place in nature? Where's where do you find the most restorative? Where do you go to recharge? I love the beach. I really, really love the beach. I have uh, family in California. That's probably where I want to be the most. Oh man, I, you know, I'm really surprised to hear that. Having just been up on my recent trip to um, to, to Canada, having just been up to the lakes around and a few hours north of um, north of you uh, north of you in Ontario. I was sure you were going to say the Canadian lakes, but no, it's it's California beaches. I love anywhere I am. I can be happy once you become nature literate and you know the plants around you. You can be happy anywhere, which is uh, you know I I think part of my passion is that I was able to match uh, being nature literate. You fall in love with it, but also realizing how important and what's at stake around natural resource management. So pairing those two have made me so passionate, but um, yeah, so I can be happy anywhere. I love Ontario and the, the environment around here, but God, I love the sunshine too. So kind of, uh, you know, and it's also the floristic capital of the world. It's a biodiversity hotspot down there. So I, I like going anywhere, but I love the heat too. So. Sun- sunshine feels like a good place to leave it. Thanks again. Add one yeah, more of course. Class, yeah, kind of course. Note. It's just this idea around livability. I'm sure you hear this a lot. And as an urban planner myself, uh, a lot of the uh, profile, uh, high-profile strategy, uh, environmental strategies I've been working on, there's all this talk around livability. And I keep thinking, like, if you bought a house and someone said, like, how's the house? And you're like, it's livable. It's literally the lowest design or, uh, like, the lowest design standard that we could we could be aiming for and when i look at these buildings in singapore and my jaw drops and i think oh my god it's the same reaction i get when i'm out in the rocky mountains or out in california or up in around lake halliburton of just awe and astonishment so i think that we need to start setting the bar bar higher and raise the bar of uh, the standard of urban living to create places that inspire us rather than uh, wanting to, uh, you know, wanting to kill ourselves, which a lot of places uh, surrounded by concrete kind of feel. Widening the, widening the scale of the interventions we make. Yeah, well, there's at least one landscape architect on my list to get in um, as a guest on the, on the pod. Um, so hopefully we can, um, we can, we can progress that. Um, did I read correctly that Toronto is the most livable city in the world? 
Yeah, and they, we have a lot of great stuff happening here. Um, we're, we're, we're great with uh, creating urban density. We've protected all of our ravine systems. The ravines go through every ward in the city, so everyone has access to them. Um, we do a lot of work around investing in parkland and uh, sustainability initiatives. We have a green belt surrounding the city. It definitely is on the forefront of sustainability, so it's an honor to live here. What do you mean by ravines? I think of rocky washes on the side of mountains. I guess that's not what you um, what you mean in, in relation to Toronto. Yeah, ravines are essentially when there's water courses that exist in uh, clay or sandy soils. They create these uh, these deep valleys, and uh, we have uh, these valleys that run through all of uh, our city. In so they're rivers, but they create valleys. And uh, they're essentially our upside-down mountains, and they go through uh, many parts of our city, and they lead out to Lake Ontario. 